So good morning and welcome to this day of sutta study and practice together. It's good to see all of you. Um, Today what we're going to do is explore a couple of texts together and uh, you don't have to have the books, I brought them for us. And we'll also do some sitting practice, so it's intended to be both reflective and have some time for silent practice on our own. We will have an hour for lunch sometime around the middle of the day. We'll see how that flows. And I thought um, I thought we'd begin by uh, just going around the room and each person would have a chance to say their name and uh, their interest in the texts or in the stay long. That would be helpful for us to hear from everyone. Why don't we start here? My name is Trevor. Um, my interest here. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, you can make it up on the spot. Yeah, sure. Uh, I've, I've been reading the sutras on my own for a few years and uh, found them to be rich in understanding and wisdom for my own life. So I'm just here to continue that as part of my personal practice. Um, my name is Patrick. Uh, this is my first visit to Inside Santa Cruz. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Welcome. Yeah. Sat a few times at uh, Santa Cruz City Center. Uh, and I've never really done any sutta study. Okay. So it's interesting. Great. Yeah, there's definitely no prerequisite for being here. <laughs> so, excellent. Thank you. My name is Bonnie. Um, I'm interested in being here today because it's a day long and because you're here. Mm-hmm. And I'm always interested in the sutras even though I don't study them. Great. Thanks. My name is Joanne. And um, I guess I'd call myself a beginner on the sutras. So it would seem like it would kind of flush out the ground a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the stuff I do kind of in general. And, uh, and I too am here for you. And, and I know I'm sneezing and I'll try not to sneeze. It's okay. <laughs> as well as I can. <laughs> so it's all in the middle. Stir the, yeah. the clock. But thank you. Welcome. I'm Susan. appreciate this class. It's like coming back to some good, really basics. Great. They're clear. <laughs> Thank you. We have such a wonderful range. I hope that's going to really enrich what we're talking about today. So, um, so I'm going to give just a kind of an overview of the, the texts in the Pali Canon uh, to ground and orient people or to remind those who are 
we've done this before, or if you've heard all this before, please just bear with it. Um, but I think it's it's nice just to to orient. So um, the Pali Canon is the set of texts that is used in, in the the traditions of Buddhism that that look back and try to find the original word of the Buddha. So that's preserved in the modern world, mostly in the Theravadan tradition, which is in Southeast Asia, um, places like Thailand, Burma, and Sri Lanka, most common. And it's kind of leaped across into the West now in in some other form that we call the insight tradition or the Vipassana tradition, something like that. Um, the texts are called suttas, and we, we all said that word in our introductions, but just to be aware, there are later texts that are called sutras, and that's um, just a change from Pali, which is the language we're talking about, that these were originally written in, and Sanskrit, which the later texts were written in. Um, the Pali canon itself is... Um, what's called a closed canon. It's a set of texts that at some point were stopped in terms of changing. You know, they were written down and collected up and then um, uh, no longer had things added to them at some point, although there, of course, been some commentaries and there continue to be, you know, Dharma books like you can buy from Spirit Rock teachers. Those are, in a sense, later iterations of these, but the, you know, these are sort of early texts um, it's a property of the Theravadan tradition that it uses this closed canon. The later Buddhist traditions um, have ways where they've allowed other texts to come in and they've sort of made that work in the way that um, the texts are described in those traditions as um, having later insights or things that were revealed after these original texts, something. And so those are not closed canons, not closed sets of texts. Um, Those who are devoted to these texts will say that one of the reasons they're inspiring is that they're the getting as close as possible to what the Buddha actually taught and so that's very inspiring for you know, those of us who take his enlightenment as, as a refuge um, but there are other ways of other ways of seeing it uh, just a brief overview of the actual books of the canon. I don't have them all here. I keep pointing to these, but this is only a fraction. Um, there are kind of... There are the, the canon is called uh, the Tipitaka also, which means the three baskets. And those three baskets of teachings are the Vinaya, which are the monks' and nuns' rules of, of conduct. So they tell all those rules about not eating afternoon and how they should walk and how they should wrap their robe and and it gets more complicated than that but all of that is written in a set of texts Uh, Vinaya V-I-N-A-Y-A and then the second basket is the Sutta basket and so that would be what the texts that we're looking at today come from that and these are said to be the discourses that the Buddha spoke during his lifetime the sermons that he gave or the teachings that he offered and so those are very special to people who are studying and practicing on the path and then the third basket is called the Abhidhamma and that is a a special set of teachings Um, in our tradition we say that the Buddha gave those teachings to um, devas actually sort of celestial beings but humans were allowed to listen in through his repetition of them later 
Um, and they're very detailed, it's a very detailed sort of psychological analysis of how the mind actually works in terms of literally moment to moment unfolding of how perception happens, how thought happens, how intention happens, how enlightenment happens, how rebirth happens. Um, it's a catalog or a compendium of all the, uh, all the components of the mind and how they relate. And it also includes a compendium of the material qualities of the universe, so the elements and the physical. So it's, it's like everything. <laughs> it's sort of the grand unified theory of it. Um, and if you study the Abhidhamma, you'll see that it has echoes of what's in the suttas, it's, but it's just way more detailed. It's like learning atomic chemistry compared to learning, you know, structural engineering. You know, it's like the, the details compared to the general, more general, larger scale ideas. Um, I'm not sure everyone would agree with that. That's my assessment. Uh, I'm not a scholar myself. I have studied the text for quite a few years with a number of teachers and they've been very important in my own practice. And I've begun to share them with others. And, um, you know, some of the teachers I've studied with are Shiloh Catherine, who has done work directly with Bhikkhu Bodhi and also um, her own detailed work with Pau Oxide. Uh, and also Gil Fronstall, who is himself a scholar and has, is my main teacher. And I've, you know, I've been taking courses for credit with him through a graduate school. So you know, that's kind of my intellectual background. But um, I'll say also that I was telling Bonnie earlier, right when we arrived, I wasn't always intellectually interested. I didn't start out intellectually interested in the text. I was really, I read them much more for my practice and for the inspiration of them. And I even shied away, actually, from learning about them from an intellectual perspective for a long time, because I felt like it might somehow interfere with my ability to really meet them on a heart level. And, and then later, there came this interest in incorporating them into my intellectual understanding. So that, that was kind of the order it went in for me. But I think it goes in different ways for different people. Okay, and then just um, to give a little overview specifically of the basket called the suttas, um, just so that we're oriented to that, so you get the picture. There's the three baskets. We're in the basket of the suttas now. And within that, there are texts that are called Nikayas. I don't actually know what that word translates as, but essentially it means collection of texts. And um, there are four main Nikayas and then a fifth Nikaya that's a whole bunch of texts stuck together. And just to say what they are, the first uh, Nikaya listed is the Diga Nikaya, the long teachings of the Buddha. These are because they tend to be longer suttas, I think. And they often have the, um, I'm now using an analysis that Bhikkhu Bodhi did, who's one of the main translators of these texts. His analysis says that the Diga Nikaya is likely the texts that were intended to kind of establish Buddhism relative to the other philosophies of the time. You know, Buddhism didn't just arise in a vacuum, it arose in ancient India, where there was a Brahmin culture that had a very specific kind of proto-Hindu kind of um, approach. And in addition, there were a bunch of other spiritual ascetics. The Buddha was kind of a radical, live-out-in-the-woods kind of guy, and there were other people who did that too. 
and they had their own philosophies. And so the question is, you know, what was the Buddha teaching? It's kind of a kind of a um, text that defines all of that and defends a little bit the Buddhist teachings against other traditions of the time. But there's also some very relevant suttas. It's not only of historical interest. The sutta, there are suttas in there, um, for instance, the one about the death of the Buddha, the uh, uh, Mahaparinirvana Sutta, Mahaparinirvana Sutta, about the, um, what happened at the end of the Buddha's life. Um, it also has the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, so one version of the Satipatthana, which we study, is in the Diga Nikaya. So don't dismiss it as just relevant for ancient India. The second text is... Um, this one, the middle length discourses, the Majjhima Nikaya. We're going to read a sutta from here. This text, according to Bhikkhu Bodhi's analysis, the, the texts are a little sh- shorter. They're a middle length. <laughs> there isn't a short length Nikaya, just I don't know why. But um, And these tend to be stories and contextualized teachings where you understand that the Buddha was in a certain situation and it describes who was there and the, what was going on and then he gives a teaching and so, so it's kind of you know story-like, but it's not only a storybook. Bhikkhu Bodhi's analysis says this is likely a manual for new monastics. So not that they were reading at the time of the Buddha, but it was compiled as the teachings that were relevant for people who had committed to the path already. They were Buddhists, uh, in a sense, but um, needed to learn what are the basic teachings. So there's a lot of stuff in here about karma, about the Eightfold Path, about the Four Noble Truths, about uh, impermanence, all kinds of faith is a a strong teaching in here. So um, all the kind of basic topics that you would want to know as as an aspiring young Buddhist. And so that makes it especially relevant for us. Uh, You don't have to be a monastic. It's just anyone who's a serious practitioner. So this is a great text. There's a lot in there, and it's in, presented in interesting form, right? Because it's in the form of stories, and so there's kind of a literary component also. And then um, the third text of the five Nikayas is the uh, Samyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses of the Buddha. And this text is um, really big. It's even bigger than this brown one here. And it's... Um, very succinct teachings on kind of the um, the structure of how the um, how the teachings kind of point toward uh, toward liberation. So these are kind of the Majjhima is more about overall teachings, the Eightfold Path, effort, faith. Um, it has karma and rebirth, and then the Samyutta is a little more focused on um, certain lists. You know the the hindrances and the faculties and the um, seven factors of awakening, these kinds of things. And it talks about, and a lot of the teachings really point toward how you would use the text to deepen your concentration, uh, bring your insights to fruition. So it's considered a text for um, later monastics, like people who are really aiming for liberation in their practice. So it's also very relevant for us. But the teachings are a little pithier. They're not they don't tell you who all was there. Some of them do, but the majority of them are just kind of teachings that the Buddha gave, very condensed. Um, yeah, it's a different style. And then the fourth is um, 
The fourth text in the, in the Sutta Pitaka is this one, the numerical discourses of the Buddha, the Anguttara Nikaya. Anguttara means something like incremented by one. <laughs> and I love this book because the, te- the chapters are actually called the Book of the Ones, the Book of the Twos, the Book of the Threes, up to, I believe, the Book of the Elevens. <laughs> um, and they are literally uh, teachings where there's a, that number is relevant. You know, the Buddha will say, monks, there are these three characteristics. Um, and he describes them. Or monks, there are these five faculties. And he describes them. And, you know, they're kind of, all those lists are really brought together here. Um, the, yeah, the sort of numerology of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, no, not, it's not really numerology, but these are expositions of lists. And it's said that Bhikkhu Bodhi thinks that this text might have been useful for teachers, you know, who need to come up with a Dharma talk, and so, I mean, maybe not literally like that, but, you know, they need to know, you know, what, what can I talk about in terms of, you know, let's see, oh, I know, I'll, I'll look at this one about the um, five ways that one can attain enlightenment. That's in here, by the way. And so you could talk about each of the five, you know. Um, so it's a handy kind of manual. It also has a lot of the teachings to lay people. So I, I talked about the other text being more for monastics who were committed their life to the path. This book, The Numerical Discourses, somehow ended up being the one where a lot of the teachings to lay people are collected. Um, so it has teachings about how to live a balanced household life, how to um, practice while you are living with sensual pleasure and children and a job. So it's also very relevant for us. A lot of these texts, and, and interestingly, uh, in ancient India, they had the same issues with finding enough time to practice and um, taking care of all the stuff you have to do as a layperson and getting all that to balance and work and relationships with your partner and with your children and so forth. So there's kind of interesting things related to that. Also ones where you learn about cultural differences, like there's a lot of stuff in here about, or some things in here, about, you know, a good wife does the following six things, and, you know. Uh, okay, and then the fifth uh, Nikaya, just to complete the overview, is called the Kudika Nikaya, which means minor discourses, something like that, lesser discourses, but not in terms of their content. And it's, it's just a collection of, I believe, 15 texts um, that are shorter. Um, one of them is the Dhammapada, which People, many people have heard of because it's actually used in other traditions also. Um, so the Dhammapada, um, a book called the Sutta Nipata, which is probably one of the very earliest texts um, put together. It, it references monastics, but not monastics living in monasteries. It was more like just people who were wandering who had converted to Buddhism but were still wandering on their own. They hadn't really come together. And so that's, that and other things give a clue that it might have been quite an early text so that one's interesting it has a lot to do with uh, letting go of views which I find interesting and then other texts um, the Itivutaka which was written by collected by a laywoman so that's kind of interesting the enlightenment poems of the monks and nuns of the elder monks and nuns Some it was common at the time that maybe um, you would compose a poem you see this in Zen also right more a death poem maybe but um people would write somehow, somehow the experience of awakening is so out of the ordinary that it's, you don't just, you know, compose a speech about it in regular prose, it evokes poetic language, and so there's collections of 
texts that were written by elder monks and nuns who had attained arahantship. So this collection of 15 texts had a lot of interesting things in it, also sort of a smorgasbord. Yeah. Was it thought that the teachings were originally oral, and was it centuries later that they became... Yes, that's a nice segue. So originally these teachings were spoken, and they were in fact first collected, so we are told, um, in a council that was held a few months after the Buddha died. So the Buddha died, and then all the arahants, all the enlightened disciples got together and recited the texts and kind of agreed on what they were, probably led by Ananda, who was the Buddha's, not led, but the texts were probably mostly recited by Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant for much of his teaching career and was said to have an amazing memory, and he just memorized everything that he heard from the Buddha. Um, You know, I don't know, but maybe. And um, so he recited all of these, and then people took them on as, you know, I'm going to be the person who remembers this text or this set of texts. And you're right, they were transmitted orally for as many as several centuries after that time. Now, you know, you can say, wow, telephone, we know things change, you know, that game telephone. On the other hand, people at that time had fewer distractions in their life, and, you know, they certainly weren't living lives like ours. And so I think it was probably easier to carry a text accurately when you had a lot less on your mind. Um, so I, I have some faith that there was, you know, these were transmitted truly. Um, there were other councils later that revised the text a little bit. It took a while for the canon to close. I guess that's what I'll say. The Vinaya might have been closed. Parts of it might have been closed immediately after the Buddha died. Um, but some of these other texts kind of got accreted and there's evidence in some of them that they were put together later. Um, and in fact, one of the texts we're going to read today, this one from the Middle Link Discourses, has um, some interesting uh, literary connotations, uh, resonances with literature at the time, and it possibly was composed, maybe around a real teaching that the Buddha gave. We don't know. So, you know, are these texts actually the literal word of the Buddha? I think it would be hard to say that for sure. Um, I think we don't know. You know. It's an interesting scholarly question. What? It's the same in the Bible. What did Jesus actually say? Well, we don't know. We don't know for sure. We have other people's testimony. Um, for sure, the Buddha never wrote anything down. They were eventually committed to palm leaf, I believe, um, because um, almost out of threat, you know, there came a time centuries after the Buddha's death, stuff in India, you know, the history of India is going on after this, and um, there came a time when um, uh, tribes and other groups and raiders, whatever you want to call them, came in from uh, probably what's now the Middle East, but, you know, that kind of area, and there were monasteries destroyed, and Buddhism was not in favor at that time. It went in and out of favor with the kings at the time. and so it's, it was eventually driven down to Sri Lanka, um, being kind of the bastion of it. And they said, hey, we got to write this stuff down. Things are being, you know, it's really falling away in the main continent. Um, and so it was written down and then preserved. And there were issues then of preservation. Palm leaves are subject to insects, <laughs> for example. And so it was a challenge. And actually, as I learned more about this, 
and I uh, by no means know the whole history of how the text came to us, I've just gained so much respect and wonder that this happened because people cared about these people, real people over time, many hundreds of them to get to here over 2,600 years. Um, you know, that was a lot of care and a lot of benefit coming to us. And so I think there's a certain honor also in reading them and preserving them and practicing them and sharing them uh, as we just continue this line that began way back then. And who knows how long it'll continue and how it'll, what form it will continue in. One more thing. Um, we're, we're nearing the end of this introduction. Um, these particular texts in the Theravadan tradition, there wasn't just one line from the Buddha to us. Um, and there were, in fact, many different schools. Particularly, there was kind of a breaking up and separation into many different schools. They didn't have internet technology, so you know, all had someone had to do was move a hundred miles away to another village and start teaching, and there could be a differentiation of the teachings there. And so there grew different schools over time, all Buddhist, but they disagreed on certain teachings and certain vinya rules, and there was competition over time. And some of them survived and some of them didn't, based on all kinds of conditions. And the one that made it up over Bangladesh into Southeast Asia and took root in Thailand and Burma and eventually translated the texts into Thai and Burmese, which we have now gotten into English, although we also looked at the Pali ones to get to English. Um, that is the school called the Theravadan school, which means the way of the elders. And they were one of the most conservative schools. Um, and they thought that they were really preserving the word of the Buddha, but they also, um, there's evidence that they made the texts more misogynistic than they were originally. And because we have other, you know, other texts leaked out and went out and were translated into Chinese, for example, and Tibetan. And they were obviously early Pali texts that got translated and then stuck in those <coughs> languages um, while. Buddhism evolved, and so we have kind of fragments of these texts, but in other traditions, uh, other early traditions that are no longer extant. And um, that these are a little different, so we don't know what what translation has happened over time. But this is kind of the best we have in terms of really looking back as far as possible. And there's starting to be interest, more and more interest among Westerners in what's called early Buddhism which is really the study of you know, what did the Buddha actually say. Because actually what you'll hear in a, in a Thai or a Burmese monastery, if you go there now, is um, not the same mix of texts as you see in the original Tipitaka that, we, that we've preserved over time. They've changed it into Thai Buddhism, into Burmese Buddhism. It's very much based on the Abhidhamma, actually. And we never studied the Abhidhamma here in the insight tradition. So... Who knows what the actual thing is? I don't know. It's always just what we've been doing. But I'm really inspired by these these texts. I have faith in the people that have translated them and preserved them over time. And I've just found practically that they're so useful in opening the heart and developing wisdom. So here we are, continuing a very long tradition. You can. I hope you'll feel connected to those 2,600 years of people who've been doing this because they were no more special than any of us we can do this too. Are there any questions about the texts overall? We've already had one, but just anything else that comes to mind? 
Okay, then I'll just say a few words about our relationship to the text, getting into now the personal feeling of what we're doing here today. There are many ways to relate to these texts. I gave this overview so that we would have just a context, um, but that's a fairly kind of scholarly, intellectual way to look at them. They're, they are a glimpse into Indian culture at the time. They're an interesting you know, telephone tree of books that have gotten to us. Um, that's one way to see them. Another is to see them as practice instructions. You know, you read a text and it says something. Do you actually go and do that on the cushion? <laughs> um, that's one way to look at them. They can be looked at as poetry, as you know, glimpses into the mind of people who were enlightened. Um, how did they think? How did they see things? How did they express things? What does that mean to me? Um, we're going to be taking several different approaches today, and I encourage you to find... To, to find the relationship to the text that works for you. Um, there are ways to read them. You can read them from start to finish and think about how they relate to other texts. My teacher has encouraged this, and sometimes I've done it, is to read just like a paragraph or two every night and just let that text kind of soak into you over however long it takes to get through it. You can read them and reflect on them and take notes and think about them, or you can just read them and read them and read them and put them aside and read them and trust that something is going in and never think about them. Um, And I've had experiences where texts that I just had read um, and I never thought about again suddenly pop into my mind during practice. That's that text I read. And I didn't think it was special at the time. I didn't take any notes on it, etc. But it was going in somehow. And so I've started to trust that. I've also started to see in the texts that there's a resonance between what's written here and what happens in my practice. You know, I read about uh, an image that the Buddha offers, like, you know, the beginning stages of concentration are like a bath man working water into bath powder. And this is a real image. And... He takes a little bit of water and he sprinkles it on the bath powder. We can think of flour, we don't have bath powder, but you know, and he works it in and works it in until the water saturates the whole ball but doesn't drip. So you get a sense of what that's like. And he says, This is like the beginning stage of concentration as we massage the whole breath through the body. And it's true, actually. Having read that, I then could experience that a little bit more. Now, did I experience that, quote unquote, just because I read it? Maybe, maybe, but so what? You know, we're all the time we're taking in stuff from the outside and integrates into our experience. Um, this is how the practice works. And so for me, the, the actual language of the text, which has been now, now in English, um, affects how my practice unfolds. And I think that's one way that the, the texts influence us in terms of helping us to develop in our, on our path. Okay, so let's um, talk a little bit about today's topic, and then we'll start on the sutta. So today's topic is called The Path of Transformation. I wanted to share this idea that what we're doing, and I've just described kind of that process, is that we're transforming the mind and the heart through practice. We start out in a certain way, and then we start sitting down and focusing on our breath or opening our awareness or developing our heart, whatever it is that we do. And somehow, magically, I really think it's a mystery, 
uh, we find our behavior changing and we find our interests changing we find our views are different over time and we find our, we're capable of different things and we different things come into our life well how does that happen I'm not going to tell you the answer today I still think it's a mystery in some way but the Buddha's describing he wasn't describing a philosophy that we take on he wasn't even describing a self-improvement course where we can decide I'm going to work on my shyness or I'm going to work on this or that although we can do that for short for areas in our path I think we can do that but overall uh, this transformation is something a little bit out of our hands <laughs> and the Buddha intended for people to be transformed you know he looked at us as beings that are struggling in samsara and because we don't understand what we're doing and he had great compassion for watching this and he really wanted us to to be something different such that uh, we didn't take on suffering the way that we are it's quite profound he himself saw this you know he started out in a life like ours he lived in a palace or whatever the story is that you follow and at some point he said this isn't doing it for me and he went out and he became something completely different through his practice and then he figured out a way that he could come back and I don't want to say formulate that's a little too logical but he figured out ways to to speak about that such that our mind would be drawn along that same path if we went with what he was teaching so this is not something that just happens in a flash is that's what we teach in this tradition <laughs> or by divine intervention of some kind uh, the Buddha taught in the early text that this is a process and what he teaches is a method or a path this word maga or marga in Sanskrit means really path um, and this is how it comes about so the path you know what is this path well it does include instructions that we have to follow it is sort of prescriptive in a sense because what we're doing now in our life isn't quite right <laughs> because we're not free we're not um, most of the time we're not free or some of the time and so there are actually instructions to follow there is actually some kind of effort to be made and yet what happens when we make the effort that when we follow the prescription that's given is not just kind of a logical where you say, you know, if you learn trigonometry, you'll be able to take the sign of a 37-degree angle. You know, it's like, it's true. That's how it follows in mathematics. But it's not quite like that. We're, we're engaging in something that we don't really quite know the result. It's like, you know, you're baking something and you don't know what it's going to be after it rises or something. So it's a different realm. What we're moving into is a different realm that can't be understood by our current mind. And so it's a very interesting question how you would teach that to somebody. So that's part of the brilliance of the Buddha that I see in just glimpses of over the time that I've worked with these texts. How is such a thing to be described or taught to someone who's in an unenlightened state that kind of pushes them toward that and eventually allows this opening to happen? Interesting question. Um, so we're going to start with... Uh, a story, essentially, one of these ones from the Majjhima Nikaya. Um, I'll pass it out. Uh, 
So the, the sutta that we're going to look at first is this one, the Angulimala Sutta. Don't read it yet. We're going to actually read it together. I think I shouldn't have passed them out yet. I just want to uh, do a, We are actually literally going to read it, so you're going to have a chance to say it out loud. This um, sutta uses story or drama as its means of teaching. Um, it taps into, therefore, the way story and drama do, it taps into people's emotions and people's imagination, and it uses kind of elements of drama to challenge people's views. It kind of pushes you a little bit, um, the way uh, a well-done play or movie or drama will, will do. I'll give a little bit of a disclaimer that this sutta is um, atypical. It's scholars believe it's atypical among the suttas in this collection and even in general, but that's okay. You know, we don't have to read. Well, we'll read a more typical one this afternoon. Um, possibly, I'll describe this a little more later. But possibly, it was composed as something to be performed uh, as a play, actually. But and so it's likely that this was put together as literature, um, maybe not literally true. And that's one of the elements we're going to talk about today, is how we relate to suttas that have these dramatic elements in them, or are story-like in how they're teaching. You know, what do we do with that? And since we have a Zen person here, I'll say that later um, texts got even more, even more dramatic. Zen, some of the Zen, some of the Tibetan texts have these, you know, 27 heavens and the Buddha with 500 attendant retinue and these fantastically dramatic things and you know I don't know if they're meant to be taken literally but they do something to the mind to read those and we don't have anything kind of that garish in the Theravadan tradition but um, you know this text has a little bit of that in there so it's kind of kind of interesting and exciting for me as, as a student of this okay so um, so we're going to begin. So because we learned that this was an oral tradition, I have certainly found in studying the suttas that it really helps to hear it <laughs> and to, um, yeah, and to uh, do it in that verbal way. Not, it's nice to read it also on, you know, quietly. But so we're actually going to going to read this piece by piece and kind of talk about it as we go along. I don't know if we'll literally read the whole thing or if I'll summarize some sections. We'll just kind of see how it goes. How about that? So, um, who would like to to begin? Maybe Trevor? Sure. Okay. So, begin and I'll let you know when to pause. Okay. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Sabathi in Gentis Grove, Anathapindika's Park. Now on that occasion there was a bandit in the realm of King Pasanadi of Kosala named Agulimala, who was murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Villages, towns, and districts were laid waste by him. He was constantly murdering people, and he wore their fingers as a garment. Okay, we'll pause there for a moment. <laughs> so this is the setup. You know, it's like telling you the the, yeah, the basis. And so it's like, wow, you know. Um, Angulimala, uh, you know mala, that's like a, a necklace or a, you see, you've got one on, that's a mala. So mala beads. Um, 
and Anguli means finger. So this was, he was said to cut off the finger, of, well, a finger from each person that he murdered and wear it as a necklace around his neck. There's kind of a story, I won't tell you the whole story of Anguli Mala, but um, apparently he was uh, uh, actually a, um, a follower, I believe, of another teacher who gave him the task of um, doing these murders, a teacher in another tradition. And so he and he was so faithful to that teacher that he took it on as you know, as his spiritual task to do this. Um, and he used to be named, I think, Ahimsa, which means harmless. That was his maybe original name. So he's an interesting guy. He's got kind of a funny psychology going into this. Um, don't worry about the pronunciation of the Pali words. You did great, actually. <laughs> uh, but you know, we're not we're not worried about that today. And so he's. This guy's set up as a real villain, right? He's constantly murdering people, I mean, so this is a little dramatic. And, um, and so, so the setup is that the Buddha's going to probably encounter this guy. Okay, so um, let's keep reading. Would anyone else like to pick up? Okay, then. Sure. Uh, then, when it was morning, the Blessed One dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, went into Sabati for alms. When he had wandered for alms in Sabati and had returned from his alms round, after his meal he set his resting place in order, and taking his bowl and outer robe, set out on the road leading towards Angulimala. Cowherds, shepherds, plowmen, and travelers saw the Blessed One walking along the road leading towards Angulimala and told him, do not take this road, recluse. On this road is the bandit Angulimala, who is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Villages, towns, and districts have been laid waste by him. He is constantly murdering people, and he wears their fingers as a garland. Men have, men have come along this road in groups of 10, 20, 30, and even 40 but still they have fallen into Angulimala's hands. When this was said, the Blessed One went on in silence. For the second time, for the third time, the cowherds, shepherds, plowmen, and travelers told this to the Blessed One, but still the Blessed One went on in silence. Okay, so let's pause there for a moment. So, um, so we've seen... So here's a little bit more of the setup, right, explaining. This is starting to get a little bit fantastical, right? One man who can kill groups of up to 40 people and, you know, hasn't been caught after all this time. So we, but we accept that. This is part of the setup. And um, the Buddha ignores the warnings to not go that way. Mm-hmm. And in this last paragraph that you read for the second time, dot, 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 for the third time, this is something that's done in the suttas, is these dot, 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 these illusions of um, repetition. Because this was an oral tradition, so what it means is for the second time, it would say, the cowherds, shepherds, plowmen, and travelers, and then you pick up there, saw the Blessed One walking along the road, leading towards Gudmala, and told him, blah, blah, blah. And that would have all been quoted. Um, and then for the third time, and this was even elided to say, this to the Blessed One, but it would have had that whole text there. And this is likely because it was an oral tradition, and it was easier to remember if you just repeated the same thing again and again several times. And it's also, 
I mean, I think that's the main reason that there's a lot of repetition in the suttas, but another reason is that certain sections are repeated because they might actually be important. <laughs> you know, they're, um, they're said multiple times because, I don't know about you, but I have to hear the Dharma many times, and sometimes I've heard something many, many times and I'm still not doing it because my mind hasn't quite gotten it, you know? Um, it's a process. Okay, so... I don't know if that's the case in, in this one. This is maybe more just a repetition for memorization. But there's also a tradition in the in Buddhist texts that if something is done three times, that's kind of the end of it. If you ask the Buddha something three times, he either he has to respond the third time, even though he might say on the first two, don't ask that, or don't, it's not the right time. But if you ask again, don't ask that, it's not the right time. And you ask a third time, he has to respond. <laughs> so three times is kind of the magic number. So this is clear that the Buddha is going to go on because three times he went on in silence. So that's it. You know, he's going to go on. Okay. So who would like to pick up the reading at section well, four? He went on in silence. Yeah. He just he didn't even respond. So how do you interpret that? Well, it's, it's like as as it keeps growing more fantastical, twenty, thirty, even forty, he has no reactivity to the fantasy or the. It's like creating a juxtaposition between how a normal person might respond, like in fear or mm-hmm. terror or worry. Carry on. Good, no yeah. reactivity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no fear. I like it. Yeah. Maybe we'll just keep going around. Would you like to go on, Bonnie? Thanks. The bandit um say say it one time. It's Angulimala. Thank you. <laughs> the bandit Mala saw the blessed one coming in the distance. When he saw him, he thought, it is wonderful, it is marvelous. Men have come along this road in groups of 10, 20, 30, and even 40, but still they have fallen into my hands. But now this recluse comes alone, unaccompanied, as if forcing his way. Why shouldn't I take this recluse's life? Anguli Mala then took up his sword and shield, buckled on his bow and quiver, and followed close behind the Blessed One. Then the Blessed One performed such a feat of supernormal power that the bandit Angulimala, though running as fast as he could, could not catch up with the Blessed One, who was walking at his normal pace. Then the bandit Angulimala thought, It is wonderful, it is marvelous. Formerly I could catch up even with a swift elephant and seize it. I could catch up even with a swift horse and seize it. I could catch up even with a swift chariot and seize it. I could catch up even with a swift deer and seize it, but now, though I am running as fast as I can, I cannot catch up with this recluse who is walking at his normal pace. He stopped and called out to the Blessed One, Stop, recluse, stop, recluse. I have stopped, Angulimala, you stop too. Okay, let's pause there for a moment, actually. So this is interesting, right? So now we have the encounter between them, so first we get a little glimpse at Angulimala saying, it is wonderful, it is marvelous. <laughs> you know, that's kind of an interesting response. You know, first he's all excited, oh, one more person I can kill. Um, and I think the drama is that he was supposed to kill a thousand people. I think he had done 999 and then the Buddha came. <laughs> I think the, yeah, the myth goes like that. And so, so he prepares to kill him and then it says that the Buddha performed a feat of supernormal power, um, you know, such that he was walking, but the Ravangulimala couldn't catch him. 
this is uh, again another disclaimer. This is very unusual in the suttas. It's very there aren't very many occasions where the Buddha performs feats of supernormal power. There are other ones besides this one, but um, not too many. And so that's another hint that this was not a common way of uh, describing, you know, common way that the Buddha taught. Probably he didn't go around just performing feats of supernormal power all the time. Um, and the uh, the bandit's response is interesting. He also says it's wonderful, it's marvelous, <laughs> and is sort of amazed by this. Um, it's kind of humorous. It is kind of humorous. Yeah, it's set up. I think we're supposed to be kind of getting into it at this point. Oh, okay, this is kind of interesting, and you know what's going to happen now, right? We're getting we're getting pulled on a little bit in this, and it is yeah, it is kind of interesting. So then there's this interesting line. I really like this one where he, he calls out in a very ordinary way, stop, recluse, stop, recluse, just because he couldn't catch up. And the Buddha turns, and the Buddha, who always speaks on many levels, turns and says, I have stopped, you stop too. What do you think that refers to? I think It could refer all the way to, yeah, to the cessation of experience and through attainment of Nibbana. What else could it refer to? I think it actually has multiple. Stop your murders. Yeah, so stopping unethical conduct um, and saying very clearly, you got to stop what you're doing. It's interesting, right, that Buddha... Um, never misses a chance to teach. I mean, he, he really thought he could help this guy. Uh, he, I mean, he didn't need to. He could have gone the other way or whatever, advised the king to put more soldiers out there or something, but he thought, you know, he thought his way to help this guy was to try to teach him. So he says, I've stopped. We're going to see more about that later. Um, yeah, so we'll skip the next paragraph. It says, you know, Angulimala says, I wonder what that means, essentially. And so then um, then there's a kind of an exchange between the two in verse, which is set off um, as the kind of special language. So, um, Joanne, could you read the verse? Sure. Then the bandit Angulimala thought these references, sons of the psychics, speak truth, assert truth, Gulimala. Go to the end of the verse. You may go, great king, at your own convenience. 
Oh, no, um, you skip the page. Yeah. So saying, the bandit took his sword and weapon and flung them in the crazy as he did. The bandit worshipped the sublime one's feet, and then there asked for the going forth. The enlightened one, the great sage of great compassion, the teacher of the world with all its gods, addressed him with these words. Come, and that was how he came to be a Okay, great. So this is a, a big turning point in the story. It comes early, actually. Let's just go over some of the words. Um, first of all, the word bhikkhu that's said at the very end, that's a word for a Buddhist monk. So um, he's come, he's become a monk. So first, he questions him about this stopping because... He says, oh, they always speak the truth, but he's told me that he has stopped and I haven't when he's the one walking. It's confusing, and so on a literal level, it doesn't make sense, so he asks him. And then um, the Buddha asserts, I have stopped forever. I abstain from violence. So that was one of the meanings that we thought of. That doesn't mean that the total cessation meaning is not there. It may mean that Angulimala wouldn't understand that. And so he doesn't, you know, I have stopped forever could mean a lot of things. And so, um, interestingly, this one, like he gets attention from the Buddha, um, this one phrase where the Buddha says to him, look, this is how it is, I have, you have no restraint, I have stopped and you have not. And suddenly something happens, and Billy Wallace says, oh, this venerated sage has come to the great forest for my sake. And, you know, he suddenly, he feels like the teaching is for him. This is, um, in some ways, you could say, well, that's kind of arrogant. Um, but how many of us have been to a Dharma talk and felt like, oh my gosh, the teacher is speaking to me? <laughs> you know, this is a common feeling. So that there's some resonance, um, and so I, I prefer to interpret it that way: is that he just, he just heard something. There was something in him that was ready to wake up, and when the Buddha addressed him, that came alive. And so it's a little dramatic. He says, having heard your stanza, I will renounce evil forever. You know, the Buddha says, I've stopped. And he says, great, I'm going to do it too. If only it were that easy, right? Um, but, and then to, you know, make it clear that's what he's doing, he throws his sword and weapons away and asks to become a monk. Interestingly, that um, the Buddha thinks this is normal <laughs> and says, come you which means he's addressed him as a monk, he's made him a monk. This is the early way that people became monastics. You know, now we have the whole ceremony and you have to have a preceptor and all of this. Um, but when the Buddha was the one doing the whole thing, he would just when people asked for the going forth, he would say, Okay, come on, come bhikkhu and then that's it. They have their robe they get their robe and their role and so forth. So, right at the beginning, we have this incredible conversion of Angulimala the murderer to Angulimala the bhikkhu, the novice monk. Um, well, a bhikkhu is technically a fully ordained monk, but he just starts out. So, um, he becomes the Buddha's attendant, because the Buddha was walking alone before, so now he has an attendant. How nice. <laughs> Very interestingly. Um, so why don't, uh, Susan, could you start with section 8, if you're willing to read? Sure. Okay, thanks. Now on that occasion, great crowds of people were gathering at the gates of King Asanadi's inner palace, 
very loud and noisy, crying, Fire, the bandit on Bulimala is in your realm. He is murderous, bloody-handed, given the blows of violence, merciless to living beings. Villages, towns, and districts have been laid waste by him. He is constantly murdering people, and he wears their fingers a garland. The king must put him down. Then in the middle of the day, King Kasadi of Kusala drove out of Swati the cavalry of 500 men and set out for the cart. He drove thus as far as the road was passable for carriages, and then he dismounted from his carriage and went forward on foot to the Blessed One. After paying homage to the Blessed One, he sat down at one side, and the Blessed One said to him, What is it, great king? Is King Senya from the Vajra of Magda attacking you, or the Lucubus of Vasali, or other hostile kings? Venerable Sir, King Senya bin Vasara of Magalda is not attacking me, nor are the Lucubus of Vasali, nor are other hostile kings, but there is a bandit in my realm named Agamala, with murderous, bloody-handed, and given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Villages, towns, and districts have been laid waste by him. He is constantly murdering people, and he wears their fingers as a garland. I shall never be able to put him down, venerable sir. Okay, thank you. So, what's going on here? It's pretty straightforward. So, the the king is asking the Buddha for help, because People are up in arms saying, you know, oh my gosh, there's this murderer. And they go to the king and they say, you've got to stop him. And the king is flustered because he hasn't been able to. You know, people in groups of up to 40 have been killed by this guy. And so um, he goes to the Buddha and the Buddha says, what's the problem? Are you being attacked by somebody? Why are you rushing to these? And all this, all these references, King Seni of Bimbisara of Magadha and the Lich the liturgies of um, Vasali and so forth, um, those are just references to other people and kings at the time. Um, but we can you know, just take them more generally. He's saying, you know, what's, are you having some political difficulty? And the king says, no, it's all on account of this murderer who is running rampant in my realm and the people are upset and I'm not able to serve them and help them. King um, Vasanity was actually, of, of Kosala was pretty uh, ethical king and even made some attempts at meditation. He wasn't great but um, yes, there's a, he appears throughout the canon and there are uh, conversations between, some very interesting conversations between him and the Buddha um, and I guess the Buddha's own people, the Sakyan people um, lived in this realm under technically under this king uh, as he you know, he came into power. He came into power after. So, um, just, yeah. And, well, we won't go into the Indian politics at the time, but essentially, he's saying, "I'm having a hard time with this." So then, um, Margaret, you pick up at section eleven. Great King, suppose you were to see that Angulimala had shaved off his hair and beard, put on the yellow robe and gown. Uh, excuse me, and gone forth from the home life into homelessness, that he was abstaining from killing living beings, from taking what is not given, 
and from false speech, that he was eating only one day of one meal a day, and was celibate, virtuous, of good character. If you were to see him thus, how would you treat him? Venerable Sir, we would pay homage to him, or rise up for him, or invite him to be seated, or we would invite him to accept robes, alms food, a resting place, or med- medical medicinal requisites, or we would arrange for him lawful guarding, defense, and protection. But, Venerable Sir, how could such an immoral man of evil character ever have such virtue and restraint? Okay, let's pause there for a moment. So this is also an interesting section, to me at least, in that um, the Buddha doesn't just say, well, he's not, you know, I got him. (laughs) He does it in a moment. But he says, he poses the question first, and he says, what if uh, you knew that he had ordained as a monk, that Angulimala had actually ordained as a monk? And the king's answer is interesting. What What does he say about that? It's like being a monk is so esteemed that he just gets unrequited mercy. Like all the past is forgiven. Yeah, he he. The king is so attuned to that role. It's like immediately he says, "Well, if that were the case, of course I would pay homage to him because he has yeah so much respect for that role." He doesn't quite believe it though. At the end, he says, "How could that?" You, know, you asked me a hypothetical question. I gave you my hypothetical answer, but how could this actually be? the case for a person like that. So you can ask yourself, um, you know, this is a story in some sense, but we have murderers in our society, um, people who are in prison right now um, for that crime, or people who are going to commit it tomorrow. (laughs) And, you know, um, how do you feel about them? Do you have a sense, like, the king does, how could somebody like that ever really turn around? You know, wouldn't there always be that question of weren't they just faking it or, you know, it's an interesting question. We, we may know internally, no, people can change and, you know, I, I wouldn't ever have that sense, but um, we can just ask ourselves internally. This is just an internal reflection is how one feels um, about that. It's interesting too, though, because our society doesn't really have the other cultural construction of wandering bhikkhus, philosophers. That's right. Kind of change in the homelessness, right? Buddhism is new in the West, but we don't really have that as part of our culture. Yeah, so you could ask, is there a role that, instead of bhikkhus, since we don't have that one so commonly, that the Buddha could have said, you know, what if what if this murderer were to become... Uh, a medical doctor, a celibate Catholic yeah. priest. Well, we don't know about that. <laughs> you know, a, a doctor or a, you know a great, um, yeah, a great caring spiritual guide or something. And so, you know, how would you feel about them? Then we might say, well, in that case, yes, of course, I would feel differently. But how could that be? You know, I'm not saying this that we think this way, um, but we can check in our own heart if there's any of that slight tendency. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Buddha sets the king up, uh, and the king nicely you know, displays good character and says, well, if, if he were really a monk, then I would, I would honor him. So the, the Buddha then takes the opportunity 
and uh, we'll start in section 12. Trevor. Now on that occasion, the Venerable Angulimala was sitting not far from the Blessed One. Then the Blessed One extended his right arm and said to King Pasanadi of Kosala, Great King, this is Angulimala. Then King Pasanadi was frightened, alarmed, and terrified. Knowing this, the Blessed One told him, Do not be afraid, Great King, do not be afraid. There is nothing for you to fear from him. Then the king's fear, alarm, and terror subsided. He went over to the venerable Angulimala and said, Venerable sir, is the noble lord really Angulimala? Yes, great king. Venerable sir, of what family is the noble lord's father? Or of what family is his mother? My father is a Gaga, great king. My mother is a Montana. Let the lord, noble lord Gaga, Montanakuta, rest content. I shall provide robes, alms food, resting place, and medicinal requisites for the noble Lord Gaga, Montanaputa. Now at that time, the venerable Angulimala was a forest dweller, an alms food eater, a refuse rag wearer, and restricted himself to three robes. He replied, enough, great king, my three robes are complete. Okay, so stop there for a moment. This has some cultural things in it. Um, this construction of his name, Gaga Montaniputa, it um, takes the name of his father, and then uh, Puta means son of, so father, son of his mother. That's how you would put a name together for someone if you didn't know their name. So he's trying to correctly address him as part of a familial lineage, um, rather than his, you know, murderer name of Angulimala. It's kind of respectful, and he also, you know, fulfills his word. He finds out that he is actually. First he's afraid, and the Buddha says, don't be afraid, and so his fear subsides, another little teaching from the Buddha. And then he goes and he offers him um, food and robes and so forth, just like he said he would do in the hypothetical situation. So he comes off well, he actually uh, does what he says he would do. And then, um, and then we get to... Uh, the praise of the Buddha, which is kind of the center of the of the story, actually. It's like the middle point. We've gone up to this point, and then there's going to be a change after. So the second, actually, since we didn't uh, finish this section, maybe, Trevor, you could read that last paragraph. King Pasanadi then returned to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, he sat down at one side and said, It is wonderful, Venerable Sir. It is marvelous how the Blessed One tames the untamed brings peace to the unpeaceful, and leads to Nirvana those who have not attained Nirvana. Venerable Sir, we ourselves could not tame him with force and weapons, yet the Blessed One has tamed him without force or weapons. And now, Venerable Sir, we depart. We are busy and have much to do. (laughs) (laughs) Comes back to the the real world. (laughs) But this is, um, so this paragraph kind of summarizes uh, the situation. So what is he doing in this paragraph? Praising. Yeah, it's praising. And, and summarizing. Mm-hmm. And, and summarizing. And, and in, admitting to the Buddha's uh, spiritual prowess over their physical ability. Yeah, so that's an interesting point, is that it says, you know, we couldn't do this um, with, with force and weapons, and yet the Blessed One has tamed him without force or weapons. And it was all a little mysterious, right? The Buddha gave him a teaching, and he said, I will give up my evil ways. You know, it just, 
it was it's sort of twice. that that nonviolence triumph over violence. Yeah, so there's a little moral lesson here for us um, <laughs> about that. And you know, tames the untamed, brings peace to the unpeaceful. Um, and then, you know, problem done, we're busy and have much to do. <laughs> I love that, this little insertion of some slight amount of humor. <laughs> so are there any comments up to this point? This is actually about halfway through the story. And we have, you know, the conversion of Angulimala, the acceptance of that, the knowledge of that by the king, and so therefore the sort of understanding that all this murdering is going to be done now. And that part winds up. Well, it seems rather noble to me at that time that they would not continue to, to make him pay for what he had already done. You know, our society is quite different. Justice would be done. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get to that later. There is a little bit of that. Right. But you're right, he doesn't say, well, he doesn't say, well, you know, I don't care if he's a bhikkhu now. He's still got to go, go to, you know, 30 years plus. Right. He's already got him pretty much in Nibbana here, getting led there. He's getting led to Nibbana. Yeah, so this, you're right, this does really emphasize, sort of point toward the uh, honor with which Buddhist practice was held in this story. We don't know if it was literally true in society. Probably people were pretty similar then as they are now in terms <laughs> of, uh, but this has been created into this, into this story. And it's, yeah. Like it speaks to the king's faith. It kind of shows the process of faith kind of unfolding that he might have. It was. Yeah. I can't think of the word, but yeah. You're right. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Well, I think you got it. Go for it. Go for it. (laughs) Um, In that the king. So you've mentioned the king's faith and the development of it. I think that's right, and that he. That's, you know, a, a valid comment to put in, in that he he didn't go to the Buddha right away, right? He tried the force and the weapons and failed at that. So he had a conventional approach. Um, and yet he ha- does hold monks in high esteem, as he said in this thing, in these earlier paragraphs. And so then he realizes, kind of through this praise, he's not just, it's not just empty praise for the Buddha, he's realizing, oh, this is really interesting that this was, you know, we couldn't do it with force and weapons, and yet you have done it without force or weapons. So, yeah, it is a statement of faith in the in the practice and the way that the Buddha is in the world, which is quite amazing. Yeah. It seems like the audiences for lay people as well, because they repeat several times the duties that well, the tradition of lay people support for so providing roads. Yeah, you're right. Place, even protection. Protection and defense, yeah. Yeah, that's not one of the five requisites, but it's an additional thing that a, a king could do, at least. Um, yeah, you're right. So there's also a subtle lesson in here of how we should behave as lay people. We should be very supportive of bhikkhus. We should um, provide alms. Not, I mean, not, there's not necessarily a should in there, but it's just showing through example how a devout lay person responds. Yeah, thank you. Okay. So then we go forward from that. It says King Pasenadi of Kosovo rose from his seat, 
paying homage, keeping one is right, he departed. These are all sort of stock phrases for how you show respect to the Buddha. Um, so then starting in section 14, the story goes on. So maybe after. Sure. Uh, then when it was morning, the venerable Angulimala dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe went into Sabati for alms. As he, as he was wandering for alms from house to house in Savati, he saw a certain woman in difficult labor and painful labor. When he saw this, he thought, how beings are afflicted. Indeed, how beings are, are afflicted. When he had wandered for alms in Savati and had returned from his alms round, after his meal, he went to the Blessed One and paying homage to him, he sat down at one side and said, Venerable Sir, in the morning I dressed and taking my bowl and outer robe, went into Sabati for alms. As I was wandering for alms from house to house in Sabati, I saw a certain woman in difficult labor, in painful labor. When I saw that, I thought, how beings are afflicted. Indeed, how beings are afflicted. Yeah, so let's stop there for a moment. Um, So this is kind of a little bit parallel to what happened at the beginning, where the Buddha just has this sort of bland description, the Buddha, Blessed One, dressed, section three I'm looking at, taking his bowl and out of robes, went into Sapati for alms, wandering for alms, he returned, etc. And here we have Angulimala doing the same thing, which is just what you do when you're a monk Mm -hmm. or the Buddha. Um, And yet, he, um, so then he sees a woman who's suffering. And his response is, how beings are afflicted. Indeed, how beings are afflicted. What kind of a response is this? What a dramatic change of heart and transformation. Yeah, so there's been a change. This is a, what kind of a response? This is a compassionate response. Yeah, he sees suffering and he responds with um, a sense of uh, commonality. He doesn't say... Oh, a woman in labor. Good thing I'm not a woman. I'll never have that, <laughs> or you know, or whatever. Um, he just says beings are afflicted, which is every you know every being. He's really finding the common humanity there. Which is what the Buddha did. Yeah. Perhaps, yeah. Although the Buddha doesn't have his own affliction, but yeah, he sees how beings are afflicted. You're right. So there's another parallel to that thing with the Buddha in uh, the beginning, the seeing of the Buddha at the beginning. So he sees a being that's afflicted and, and has a response to it. So in the Buddha's case, he went and taught him. Um, let's see what Angulimala does. So section 15, maybe Bonnie, you could go ahead. In that case, Angulimala, go to Sabati and say to that woman, Sister, since I was born, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living, living being of life. By this truth, may you be well and may your infant be well. <coughs> Venerable Sir, wouldn't I be telling a deliberate lie, for I have intentionally derived, deprived many living beings of life? Then Angulimala, go into Savati and say to that woman, Sister, since I was born with the noble birth, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well, and may your infant be well. Yes, Venerable Sir, the Venerable Anagumimala replied, and having gone into Savati, he told that woman, Sister, since I was born with the noble birth, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a human, a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well, and may your infant be well. Then the woman and the infant became well. Okay, so we'll stop there for a moment. Um, this is an interesting 
section. I don't want to go into too much detail in this. This is a referring to a little bit of a cultural thing where there's a, a, I, there was an idea in India at the time that you could tell a truth, a certain profound truth, and have a big effect from it. And this is hearkening a little bit to this case where the Buddha says this odd phrase about, I have stopped, now you stop. And Angulimal is confused because it, he says, I, they tell the truth, but this doesn't sound like it fits the situation. So we are, here we have another case of telling the truth. It's kind of a sub-theme in this story. Um, and the Buddha tells him to go and do a truth declaration to this woman as a way of, um, of helping her. Very interesting, right? Um, and, you know, I don't know about this telling of a truth, uh, being able to cure or get a, help a woman get through difficult labor. I do know that um, Bob Stahl, the guiding teacher here, tells a story that he, um, I forget what it was, I think he was quit <coughs> smoking maybe, and he said, and he, and he told the truth saying that, um, you know, by this truth I will quit smoking forever and hasn't, never had a craving for smoking again after that so there's something to putting yourself behind something I think you can't just do it off the cuff all the time but he um, yeah I don't know this is a maybe a, another slightly fantastical element to the story does anyone have comments or responses to this part yeah I don't understand this at all it's telling a lie oh sorry I, I didn't explain that part about since I was born, I do not recall depriving a living being. And so he's remembering, well, I was a murderer. You know, it's, I have. And so then the Buddha corrects it to say, since I was born with the noble birth. So that was, technically that's when a person becomes a stream enterer. When they become, that's what the footnote says. Um, you don't have the footnotes there, but if you look up in the book, this footnote, it says, it says this probably implies that he had attained the first stage of awakening. In the, in the Theravadan tradition, it's said that awakening unfolds in four stages. And the first one is when one becomes a noble person. It's a certain kind of understanding. But for practical purposes, we could say, yeah, it's for when he became a monk, when he committed to the noble life, the holy life. So you can leave all your past behind you? It's an interesting point. We're going to get to some karmic teachings after this. And so, yes, the implication seems to be the past is gone although it does have a way of coming back. But this is starting to touch into, this is a way in which we're seeing the kind of literary part of this unfolding. We have a little bit of foreshadowing of what about the past sticks and what doesn't. You know, the king said nothing sticks. You know, as soon as I find out you're a monk, great, you're off. You know, there's no no arrest, no trial, etc. because you became a monk. So in, in the king's mind, that whole past is gone. Here we start to get a little hint that it's not quite gone because he remembers being a murderer and so the Buddha said, okay, you're right, to be truthful you really should say just after you became a monk and then we'll have something later. We think about this for our own life too, you know. We all have, probably not the murder of 999 people, but we've all got stuff in our past that we wish we could do over or something, you know, boy was that a screw up. Um, I do at least. And and so then you think, well, what is the effect of that? You know, if I, going forward, you know, how, how, is thing, how has something been changed if I don't do that anymore or if I commit myself to something different? 
um, what what reverberations are there still and what might there not be because I've changed course. So this is part of this transformation. Trevor referred to what an amazing transformation to have a compassionate response. Yes, as opposed to the response to the Buddha. Why shouldn't I take this refuge's life? He's walking along unarmed. I think I'll kill him. And then he sees a woman in difficult labor and says, oh, how beings are afflicted. Total transformation of his heart shown through his, you know, what he's saying. Okay, so... Um, Ah, section 16. Okay, so we'll read section 16. Um, Joanna. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before long, dwelling on withdrawal, diligent, ardent, resolute, and then was reducing for himself with direct knowledge, here and now entered upon and by, in that supreme goal of the holy life, for the sake of which clansmen rightly go forth from the home life. And homelessness. He directly knew birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done had to be done, there was no more coming to any state of being. And the venerable Abulama became one of the arrogants. Okay, so we'll let's just digest that for a moment. So this these this paragraph is if you've read more of the suttas this is a totally boilerplate stock description of what happens when a person becomes fully enlightened. So um, this uh, this phrasing about you go, you dwell alone, you realize for yourself with direct knowledge, enter and abide upon the supreme goal of the holy life, for the sake of which clansmen rightly go forth from the home life into homelessness. So this is, you know, it's like he he got it. This is what you do all this for. And then this classic phrase is repeated again and again when people attain enlightenment. Birth is destroyed. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming to any state of being. And that's a that English uh, is a little questionable. Um, there's different ways. I don't want to say questionable. That's not the right word. But there's different ways of translating. There is no more coming to any state of being. You know, what does that exactly mean? Um, this is the indescribability of the unconditioned state. And so uh, there are different ways of saying that. But essentially, or if you believe in rebirth, it's, you know, there won't be another rebirth. This is the last. Sometimes people say, I, this is my last body. Sometimes said when people become an arahant being the word that is used for somebody who's enlightened after the Buddha. So they were enlightened using the Buddha's teachings as their means. And in the Theravadan tradition, which we practice here, that is the aim, actually. It's to get enlightenment. Later traditions um, developed a different aim called the Bodhisattva aim, which the aim, the, the, sorry, the Bodhisattva is the path. The aim is to become a Buddha. Slightly different. So that's actually to eventually be reborn in a world that doesn't have a Buddha, and you become that Buddha and then teach. Um, so there's, you have to imagine a huge amount of realms, and also a long time, um, many rebirths. Except so the very latest tradition, the Tibetan tradition, says you can do it all in one uh, lifetime, even becoming a Buddha. I'm not quite sure how that works, but the Zen tradition at least imagines many, many rebirths as a bodhisattva developing qualities of character, paramis or paramitas, uh, until one can attain Buddhahood, not arhanship. It's a different goal. 
I didn't, yeah, I didn't mean this for become a comparative Buddhism study. Yeah, but. <laughs> is Arahant just used in the Theravada tradition that time? Uh, I think it's also used in the Zen tradition, but it's used as the lesser goal. You know, one might only become an Arahant, or yeah, that path is considered a lower path to those who are on the Bodhisattva path, is my understanding. But I, you know, I'm speaking out of my scholarly knowledge. Yeah. I think, well, I think in Tibetan, from what I've gathered with my studies, is that they don't set that aside. They, they encompass it in their teaching. I think that's right, is that it's, yeah. yeah. The Vajrayana path is one that includes the other vehicles right. as part of it. Right. Um, and they've kind of unified, they believe that they've kind of unified all the prior teachings. Whereas the Mahayana teachings and more Zen teachings came, I don't want to say came out of, there's evidence, there's not evidence that they came out, um, but is an alternative to the Theravadan path in a certain sense. Although one, I might say that I didn't want to make it so black and white. The um, Arahant and the, the Bodhisattva ideal does exist within the Theravadan tradition also. A relatively late addition, somebody thought of it kind of near the end of when all this stuff was being put together is my understanding from having read a thesis by someone who studied the emergence of the Bodhisattva ideal. Um, And so it's not quite right to say Theravadins have an Arahant goal and the Mahayana tradition has the Bodhisattva goal and that's the split between them. It wasn't like that. There's this kind of in-between. In fact, um, Bob Stahl's teacher, uh, who was named Tungpulu Sayadaw, he was a a Burmese uh, meditation master, Uh, it's said that he was on the Bodhisattva path. So he was a Burmese, he was Theravadan, absolutely 100% in that realm. But if you asked him what his goal was, he would say, oh, I'm on the Bodhisattva path, I've taken that vow. So, you know, even in the modern world, if we think we get a choice between Arahant and Bodhisattva in a sense, Okay, um, I did notice one person slipping out. Um, Shall we take a little break? We've been sitting for a while. So we'll wind this up. Let's just take like five or ten minutes. Okay, so we'll pick up again at um, section 17. Susan, could you, if you wanted to start with that? Then, when it was morning, the venerable Angulimala dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, went into Savadi for alms. Now that now on that occasion someone threw a clod and hit the venerable on, on Golimala's body. Someone else threw a stick and hit his body. And someone else threw a pot third and hit his body. Then with blood running from his pet head, with his broken with his bowl broken excuse me, and with his outer robe torn the Venerable Angulimala went to the Blessed One. The Blessed One saw him coming in the distance and told him, Bear it, Brahman. Bear it, Brahman. You are experiencing here and now the result of deed because of which you might have been tortured in hell for many years, for many hundreds of years, and for many thousands of years. Okay. So this is an important section. This is um, a teaching on karma in subtle form. Um, so what happens? So Venerable Angulimala goes into town and again. So first time he saw a woman in labor and cured her. 
Um, and then he becomes an arahant, and that's so that's a huge accomplishment, by the way, to go from being a murderer to being fully enlightened. I mean, that's like a wider range than I've seen in my lifetime, at least. And but this time he goes into town, and somebody presumably recognizes him and uh, and realizes who this guy is, and so they're throwing things at him, and he gets wounded, and his head is cut, and his bowl is broken, and his robe is torn. And he goes back to the Buddha, um, who says, bear it. You have to bear up with what's happening to you. And then he says something very interesting. He says, you're experiencing here and now the result of deeds because of which you might have been tortured in hell for many years, for many hundreds of years, for many thousands of years. So, what is this saying? You're still reaping your karma. So there's still the karma, but is it as heavy as it would have been? No. Yeah. So he says you could have gone to hell, and if so, now interpreting the implication, I think, is that doing good deeds, such as becoming a bhikkhu and especially becoming an arahant, um, whether you ordain or not, becoming an arahant is the key thing. Um, that changes the effect of things that have already happened in the past coming into the present. It changes how heavy they are for you, according to this. So he, this is just taking the most extreme example, you know, from mass murderer to arhant. And that you can see that there's a big difference between uh, getting your head cut because somebody throws a stick at you and um, being tortured in hell for many hundreds of thousands of years. Um, Hell. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. So remember that hell is an English word that's a translation for what the Pali says. I don't know the Pali word for that. But it refers to a lower realm where there's where beings suffer greatly. Hell in the um, Western traditions is a place of eternity. Eternal, you're damned to eternal hell, right? Or you are ascended into eternal heaven in the presence of God. It's very extreme in the Christian religion. In the Buddhist view of all this, these are just different realms, and every one of them is temporary. Hell is temporary, heaven is temporary, human realm is temporary, and those unfold according to your karma, according to uh, the state of your mind, you're getting one or the other of these things, and they just keep going. This is samsara. (laughs) Again and again, you'll get this one, you'll get that one. What is the escape from that is not eternal heaven, the escape is nibbana is to become to move into the unconditioned realm and not to be subject to the karmic forces like that. that that's not in here. I'm, I'm adding this <laughs> as a teaching. Um, so, but I think this is very, very interesting because this is not an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It says that karmic weight changes based on our actions. This is, of course, it, it has to be like that because the mind can be changed. <laughs> That's the point. If the mind couldn't be changed, why would we practice? Why would we listen to teachings? It's because there's less possibility. And then it becomes, for me, very humbling. You know, it's like, oh, right. It's up to me. How my actions are determines the weight of the effect of the karma that I continue to feel. And doing something really great, like becoming an arhat, not that we can choose when that happens, has an enormous effect of cutting away a huge amount of suffering that could have happened. Because if 
you accept the whole mythology. We've all been doing this life thing for many, 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 many lifetimes. And who knows? I can't remember my former lifetimes. I'm not saying I believe that philosophy, but I'm getting in, I'm jumping into that world. If that were true, I can't remember all those. Maybe I was a murderer. Maybe I, in fact, it says that you were. You've done everything in your past. And so all of that karma is waiting to happen, potentially. Um, boy, I'd better practice, <laughs> you know. Not that I have to become an arhat, but the goodness of, even the goodness of his ordaining already had good effects for him. And then, of course, the particular power of becoming enlightened really changed the flow of his life. Still subject to karma, you know, because he's still in his human body living out this life, stuff still happened to him. Stuff still happened to the Buddha, too. The Buddha was, uh, someone attempted to murder him, someone attempted to split his sangha, he was not liked by everyone. It's not like attaining our hardship means like enlightened retirement in this life and everything goes well and you know, you're liked and uh, you never have any pain. The Buddha had back pain, the Buddha suffered, not suffered, but he had pain near his death. So, right here in a nutshell, we see a lot of what differentiates Buddhist teachings from Western teachings and it can be hard for us to hear it sometimes. Um, there isn't a ledger book that says for every evil deed you know, you get one black mark and for every good deed you get one white mark and we're going to add them up when you die it's a lot more dynamic than that and it's changeable it can be changed by what we do now very interesting any comments on this? it feels like it's kind of describing the motion of karma the like motion it, of it you say? yeah uh-huh. it's, when he says bear it Brahman it's almost like it, the same stop right there and with that, that reframing of time mm. I don't know if it's making any sense that there's still the motion of past deeds but in that stopping then you just bear it you don't react to it is yeah. what you're saying yeah he doesn't come crying to the Buddha and say oh this is horrible I mean he couldn't he's an arahant that would not be a, an enlightened response it's not about him anymore um not that the karma is over. And it's not over, yep. But it's certainly slowed down or... Well, it's reduced in weight. The the heaviness of the deeds that he did is greatly reduced in weight. I really really like the way that you framed that it's it's not an eye for an eye and how dynamic it is and how complex karma is. And it's very complex. Yeah, we're told we can't figure it out. It's interesting, too, because I find myself in my own practice really drawn to and liking, like, karmic cosmology and how huge it is. And then there's the Western skeptic side of me, too, that comes in, and I see him say, call him Brahman, right? He goes, Barrett Brahman, and I can't help but think, like, is that an Indian cosmological imposition into the story, right? Calling him Brahman. I, you know, you just do that. And so I find it interesting as a Westerner who's outside of that culture the way that I experience the text differently mm-hmm. and how our mind has to journey differently. Oh, that's an interesting point. Yeah, there are different layers in how we read the text. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. What would he be meaning by calling him Brahman? Well, I know that was the question that came up for me. Like, why does he call him Brahman in that situation? Right? Yeah, it's kind of funny that he would say that. So a Brahman... He's calling him Bhikkhu earlier. Calling him Bhikkhu. So uh, the word Brahman means... <coughs> Historically, it means one of the members of this um, 
uh, proto-Hindu uh, religion, priesthood. They were a class, actually, in the society. There were the Brahmins and the Kaptiyas, which is where the Buddha came from, which were the sort of warriors, and the Brahmins were the priests, and then there were the artisans and the, you know, the lower... Um, or the merchants, maybe. I forget exactly how they were designated, but basically like that. And there was a little bit of competition between the Brahmins and the Katiyas about who was really in charge, who was really on the top. <laughs> the priestly um, or the, the politicians. The priests or the politicians, yeah. We did not have a separation of church and state exactly, <laughs> although, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. But So then you can say, okay, why did the Buddha call him that? I don't know the answer to that, but I can offer a suggestion, which is that there are other texts where the um, the Buddha the Buddha is critical of the Brahmins in that they are an inherited a, a hereditary priesthood. You're born into that class, and you're born into the, the upper class. Um, and and if you have some talent for and some intelligence, you'll be uh, taught the Vedic texts, um, and you memorize them, and you learn these rituals, and that you're supposed to do everything right. The Buddha thought this was complete hooey, you know, that it doesn't matter how you do a ritual, what matters is your ethical behavior, and it doesn't matter um, if you're repeating a text that everybody says is very wise, what matters is that you experience with your own body the wisdom and compassion that's possible on the path. So he was critical of this, he thought it was, you know, not that, not that real, although he did have pretty cordial relationships with Brahmins, he they were possible to be converted. Okay, so that was a long way of saying that sometimes he started to use this term Brahman. He started to tweak with the meaning of it, which he often did with words, is that instead of a Brahman being a just an automatic inherited position, he would say, he would take what the Brahman represents, which is the noble priesthood of the you know, leaders of the, religious leaders of, the, um, of that society, and he would say a real Brahman is one who has practiced my teachings, or, or you know, a real Brahmin is the one who has gone into the life of renunciation. A real Brahmin is the one who has attained concentration. And he would, you know, he would sort of tweak with the word and say, um, it's not something hereditary that you just get. It ha- it's a result of a certain kind of effort. And then he would use that same word, Brahmin, as somebody who was a noble practitioner of the Buddhist teachings. So. I'm not exactly sure why it appears here. Um, I don't think it's um, like a joke or something like that, but it's... Um, yeah. I think it's a way of support for what he's practicing. I know in the, the other translation, he just had, you know, he has uh, bear with it. Bear with it, okay. He doesn't say bear it, Brahman. He does say Brahman. Okay, yes. so bear with but it. Bear Brahman. with it, Brahman. Yeah, yeah, so he's maybe implying this is another. This is a an exemplification of what he calls Brahman behavior. The noble behavior is to right. bear with. You know, it's it's not that you're hereditary, whatever. It's that you're able to bear with suffering, mm-hmm. bear with karmic result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable interpretation. Okay, so this is. Um, one of the really key teachings in section 17 is this thing about the reduction of the weight of bad karma, unwholesome karma. And so then we, we come to the concluding verses, which is a long uh, celebration from Angulimala, who gets the whole thing. Um, so perfect, we'll go one fully around the room. Margaret, you can read that last section. 
Then while the venerable Angulimala was alone in retreat, experiencing the bliss of deliverance, he uttered this exclamation, Who once did live in negligence and then is negligent no more? He illuminates this world like the moon freed from a cloud, who checks the evil deeds he did by doing wholesome deeds instead. He illuminates this world like the moon freed from a cloud. The youthful bhikkhu who devotes his efforts to the Buddhist teachings, he illuminates this world like the moon freed from a cloud. Let my enemies hear discourse on the Dharma, Dhamma, excuse me. Let them be devoted to the Buddhist teaching. Let my enemies wait on those good people who lead others to accept the Dhamma. Let my enemies give ear from time to time and hear the Dhamma of those who preach forbearance, of those who speak as well in praise of kindness, and let them follow up with kind deeds. For surely when they would not wish to harm me, nor would they think of harming other beings, so those who would protect all, frail or strong, let them attain the all-surpassing peace. Conduit makers guide the water. Fletchers straighten out the arrow shaft. Carpenters straighten out the timber. But wise men seek to tame themselves. There are some that tame with beatings, some with goads, and some with whips. But I was tamed by such a one who has no rod nor any weapon. Harmless is the name I bear. Though I was dangerous in the past, the name I bear today is true. I hurt no living being at all. And though I once lived as a bandit, known to all as Finger Garland, one whom the great flood swept along, I went for refuge to the Buddha. And though, <coughs> and though I once was bloody-handed with the name of Finger Garland, see the refuge I have found. The bond of being has been cut. While I did many deeds that led to rebirth in the evil realms, yet their result was reached me now. And so I eat free from debt. They are fools and have no sense who give themselves to negligence. But those of wisdom and God, but those of wisdom guard diligence and treat it as their greatest good. Do not give way to negligence, nor seek to delight in sensual pleasures, but meditate with diligence so as to reach the perfect bliss. So welcome to that choice of mine, and let it stand. It was not, till ma- it was not ill-made. Of all the teachings, resorted to, I have come to the very best. So welcome to that choice of mine, and let it stand. It was not ill-made. I have attained the triple knowledge, and done all that the Buddha teaches. Okay, thank you. So that is it. We've made it to the end. And it's a long, there's a lot of references in here that I think we won't go over. But essentially this is a long, you know, LG to the um, 
the teaching that he's received and the uh, his understanding of his enlightenment and how wonderful that is and he wishes it for his enemies to hear the teachings and so forth um, experiencing the very beginning of section 18 where it says he was experiencing the bliss of deliverance that means he was resting in his enlightened state and really feeling that um, some of these verses appear in other places you can tell this like this one conduit makers guide the water fletchers straighten out the arrow shaft carpenters straighten out the timber but wise men seek to tame themselves that exact verse appears in the Dhammapada so this is um, something that was put together in some ways so he has this kind of long um, soliloquy at the end really celebrating his um, his freedom so it all comes to a happy ending <laughs> if you will but I'm curious um, how do you relate to the I want to step back and ask a few general questions. How do you relate to the fantastical elements of this sutta? You know, do you sort of ignore them or believe them or get put off by them? What is your response to those? This, this whole thing is fairly, if you really look at it, it's fairly unbelievable in a realistic, like literally realistic sense, and yet there's something powerful there for us. I think it's just... You know, this this person is uh, really really living a miserable life, yeah. and that's very common in the world. We live miserable lives, and these teachings <coughs> have given him some peace. Yeah, at least kind of in the most extreme way, he went from a very miserable life. What kind of a state must he, mind state must he be living in to think it's mm-hmm. a good idea to go murder a lot of people? And then from that all the way to enlightenment, you know, to a mind that's completely free of, of all of that. I think the fantastical elements serve a purpose for me and uh-huh. for others. Um, they're imaginative and creative. Yeah. And, um, speak of possibility and inspiration. Yeah, I would. I think that makes sense. The, um, and they're deliberate. I think they're meant to inspire that in us. Yeah, it really shows the universality of supernatural teachings. A lot of times people think of there is no supernatural included. Oh, that's a good point, yeah. But uh, it, it cuts across all cultures and religions. People like supernatural a, elements, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And there's a way to like to get across the message. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that makes sense. It's, it's interesting that... Um, yeah, it is true that people often say there's no fantastical elements. And that for the most part, the teachings are pretty straightforward <laughs> um, in the Theravadan tradition, at least, fairly spare in a sense. And they tend to... Um, discourage us from a lot of fanciful thinking and from um, speculative views and ideas about things. And yet, you know, now and then, something like this gets in here. Like I said, this is an unusual teaching, but um, it has, it does have an effect, right? So it's not, you know, if, if all the sutras were like this, it might be different. 
but in a sense it stands out as one of a few where this this kind of thing is in here. It's quite a, a remarkable literary creation in, in the way that its extremes encapsulate everyone. Like you can find yourself because he was the very worst. And then at the end he says, I have come to the very the best. Very best yeah. So it's such a wide umbrella right, of experience that any person can find themselves within. Yeah, we should be able to find ourselves in the range right. encompassed by this. Yeah, so you you said right there that this is a literary creation, and that's one interpretation of it. And so I'm okay with it being that or not, uh-huh. right? Okay. Yeah, fine. <laughs> <laughs> is it inspiring practice? Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned something that it did seem like it was a play. Is, is this actually oh, the, yeah, the um, villages in Southeast? Let me pick that up. Seems like it would be something that would be that could be performed. I could easily see this being performed. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know the literal answer to your question. Is it performed in villages in Thailand and Burma? Mm -hmm. Um, What I do know, the reason why people say that it might have been performed, is that it has a certain structure to it, Mm -hmm. which um, we didn't go over in too much detail, but has a sort of a um, particular sort of mirror-like structure to it where it comes to a point and then goes out. And that was the same structure that is seen in Indian literature, Indian drama, at that time. It's like, that was kind of like a um, template that people used. And this, for some reason, stuck in the middle of this book of suttas, has this template to it. Um, Chiasma, I think is what it's called. And... So people said, you know, this might be something that was written in that style because it was at that time, and hence it might, like the others, have actually been performed. Which is kind of cool if you think mm-hmm. about it. This would make a nice drama, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it re- reminded me of Gilgamesh for some reason. I don't know. Of Gilgamesh. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Supernatural Yeah. These kinds of religious stories, transformation. Yeah, what do you think of a murderer becoming enlightened? I love it. It almost seems like I've heard stories like that before, but I I can't really recall exactly what it was. Mm. It seems that would also have to point to a lot of karma. Yeah, interestingly, I mean, he was creating this horrible karma by murdering people, but it is true that to, to become, you know, to have the mind arrange itself into uh, a mind that's free, there's got to be a lot of prep, according to this tradition. There's a lot of prep that goes into that. So we don't know what happened in his prior lifetimes. He might have, this might have just been one little screw up for half a lifetime. Yeah. I mean, he had 500 before that that were incredibly noble. <laughs> Good right. practitioner. Who knows what's in the bag for us? <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. What are your thoughts on how instant enlightenment is often encountered in Buddhist texts and stuff? Um, I've often had a problem with that. Not a problem with that, but I, I really like. I think Suzuki Roshi's response to somebody asked him maybe about enlightenment. Beats me, <laughs> you know. It's really down to earth. Yeah, he had a about, but but in the supernaturalness, it almost seems supernatural a lot of times when I hear about this instantaneous enlightenment. 
Yeah, there are many Zen stories actually, or Mahayana stories that, you know, it'll be kind of an odd scene, you know, the teacher and the student are sitting together and the teacher points at the teapot and says, the teapot is full, and the student became enlightened, you know, and that's not a literal example, but they're sort of like that in my mind, and I also wonder, um, so there's this, there's a general question of, is it a gradual path or a sudden path, Um, and maybe there's a sort of a general tendency of the the Theravadan teachings are more about the gradual path and the Zen teachings are more about the sudden path. But you can unite them by the simple phrase, and this might have also come from Suzuki Roshi, it's gradual until it's sudden. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you know, you go and you go and you go and then you fall off the cliff. But you had to do a lot of going in order to get there. And I think there's some sense to that. Um, There are also... uh, is that a satisfactory answer, by the way? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. I still, yeah, I still don't believe in the suddenness. I uh-huh. believe it's always gradual. I see. Yeah, and that's there's never in my own personal philosophy or. or okay, you're right. So there is the then the question of what happens at that. Is there a moment when mm-hmm. something happens, or is it a continual change? Yeah, yeah. or they're real. In my belief or understanding, they're really. A true enlightenment, like the Buddha, it was a human being. Enlightenment is kind of like supernatural for me. Ah, this is getting into a different question, actually, mm-hmm. yeah. another one where there are differences in different traditions. Right. Um, in the Theravadan tradition, I don't want to sound too authoritative, but generally, there is there is a teaching where somebody sees the Buddha right after his enlightenment and says, "Are you a god?" And he says, "No." And are you a some kind of supernatural being, and he says no, and he says, well, are you a human being? And he says no, actually. And they say, well, what are you then? And he says, I'm awake. So he, d- he puts himself outside of any of those categories. So I'm not, he, was, he certainly was born as a human being and started that way. But I, there's a general um, pointing toward going to something that's different than the human realm, different than the human realm as part of the samsara. Um, and you know, do we ever actually get there? So that's the other question: is you know, is it like one of those things where the the, the curve comes down toward the axis and it gets in closer and closer and closer, but it's never going to actually cross? You know, um, or is there an actual? You know, does it get there? <laughs> is there? Does the goal get attained? And different schools, I think, have different tendencies toward this. It might depend a little on the circumstances um, that the school finds itself in, what it wants to teach. Generally, this Theravada tradition says there is a goal, actually, and you can get there. Um, it doesn't say your life is perfect. We've got to be careful what we mean by the goal. You know, what does that look like? As long as it has no greed, no hatred, and no delusion, it could be Nibbana. We don't define in the Theravada tradition. We mostly have negatives. It's unconditioned. It's uncontrived. It's on this, not that, mm-hmm. no greed, no hatred, no delusion, but never quite says what it is. <laughs> Later traditions are a little bit clearer about saying, oh, it's the ultimate bliss, it's the supreme happiness, it's this and that. Um, and interestingly, those traditions are the ones that are more likely to say you don't ever quite quite get to it. But this one says that you do, so you can get there, but it doesn't say what it looks like or what it feels like exactly. A little mystery. Yeah.
Mm-hmm. You just have to try for yourself. <laughs> Find out for yourself. Zen Master Dominic said it's possible to like be a Buddha or be enlightened and not know. Oh, that's an interesting. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Like you could be awake, but right. still not sure if you are. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you're truly awake, you right. might consider yourself yeah. enlightened. Yeah. Uh, just studying with Minga Rinpoche, I know he says that it's like having a fly between your eyes. It's right there, and, and you can't see it. And you can't see it. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah. It's pretty indescribable, mm-hmm. what's trying to be described. That's why there's this vast literature that <laughs> emerged. Everybody thought they could maybe do it. <laughs> it, does, it does seem kind of universal, as far as I've studied about him coming back to the five men that he previously studied with. And they notice the difference. They right? see the difference. Yeah. yeah. First, they plan to turn away from him. That's right. And, and then they, they realize they can't. Yeah. And, they, yeah. and they find themselves offering him a seat and asking for teachings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And one of them became instantly enlightened. Right? He attained the first stage of enlightenment mm-hmm. with the Buddha's first sermon. It's interesting that the Buddha didn't instantly like convert everybody. He talked to these Good five people. Four of them. <laughs> didn't get it. One of them got the very first stage of enlightenment. But nonetheless, it was a transmission. Because it's said that once you get the first stage, you have to, you can't go back. That's the no point of no return. You will make it. And then on, on his uh, later, one of his later, second sermon, actually, I think they all became fully enlightened. But it's, I like that even the Buddha wasn't a perfect teacher initially. Well, it's still dependent upon that person's mind. Yeah, those got their mind. So he taught the first, first he taught about the Four Noble Truths, and one of them got the first stage of enlightenment, but what really got all of them was when he taught on Mm not-self. That was the Mm -hmm. second teaching. Okay. Um... Just a little trivia point. There's a, a non-profit in Britain called Angulimala that works with murderers. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> At least it used to be. I don't know if it's around anymore. Well, if it's but in Britain, it's probably still there. <laughs> maybe it's a charity or whatever <laughs> they call it. Kind of sense them. of humor. Yeah. So I think that I thought that's kind of sweet. Yeah, I don't know if they're still around. Yeah, please do. Please do check it out. Um, I think there's something inspiring about even a murderer can become enlightened. You know, it's like, what excuse do I have then? <laughs> you know, um, at least in this lifetime, I'm not aware of that. So, you know, so there's real hope if, if there can be such a big turnaround, such a big transformation for this person. It, it's to me, there's also a little message of anybody. Anybody can do this, really. Kind of the wide range. You kind of mentioned that. So um, so we're kind of winding down on this. This is a, a, as I, to pull it back to the very beginning, I said this is a particular sutta that uses story or drama as a way to, as the method of teaching, the means of getting the teachings across. There are some very interesting teachings in here. We've already pulled a few of them out, and I'm sure there are more. Teachings on karma, teachings on truth-telling, teachings on... Um, not using violence to convert people, teachings on how lay people behave ethically and uh, respond to uh, to monks and the Buddha and so forth. And 
there's, you know, there's probably even more than we've talked about. But this is a particular device, a particular way of showing the potential for transformation in all of us through this sutta. Are there any final comments about it? Impressions that would help you feel complete? Or I know there's, there's a contemporary person who has a similar story. Uh, not a total enlightenment, but uh, and I can't remember his name, but he was a student of Trungpa's. Uh-huh. And he was traveling with Trungpa, and he came to uh, the, back to the United States, and he realized the authorities were waiting for him. He was also a really big drug smuggler, uh-huh. and he was, you know, Trungpa just said, "Go with them." Barrett Brahman. Yeah, he yeah. did. <laughs> yeah, and he did, and uh, he really transformed his life in prison. And oh, I know this to, guy also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. started a hospice and mm-hmm. prison systems. His name's going to come to me about three yeah. hours from now. Yeah, mm-hmm. or two o'clock in the morning yeah. for me. <laughs> Yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about there. Yeah. yeah. Quite an amazing yeah. And he's done he's in a sense found his freedom within the karma that he has to live with through yeah. that. And yeah. he said he really had to um, to hide his joy and pleasure that he was feeling in his body, you know, in prison because it was dangerous to be that vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's also kind of a message of we we have to work with what's come up, what life we've gotten this time around. There are things about it that we can change, and our heart can be completely transformed, but elements of our life can't in certain ways. And that's okay, that's not a, a restriction on our freedom, is the way that, you know, because we didn't choose our parents, as far as I know, so we got that, we got the education we got, we got the way we are, and we can... We can manipulate it to some degree between now and whenever we die, but um, not completely. There are certain things that are just unfolding, and I like that this says it doesn't. That doesn't constrain us in any way. The freedom of the heart is something different, and you could have it in any circumstances. Maybe that's another teaching to pull out of this. Right, you could still be hit by That's right. Those. You <laughs> might get whacked in the head, and that's all part of it. And yeah it, it does change our response to things like that instead of going after that person who's wronged us maybe we could say okay I'm going to bear this <laughs> this is something that's unfolding in my karma I'm really glad you shared this story I've never had you hadn't heard this one it. yeah probably, yeah it's a nice one like the mythology around you. Yeah, there's a lot in here, and this is just you know one teaching out of 152 in this book, and out of thousands and thousands in all the suttas. So the aim for this afternoon, and we're going to have lunch now um, for an hour, so I guess we'll come back at 1:15. And for those of you who are able to be here in the afternoon, we're going to look at a sutta that is also about transformation, uh, the same general topic, but it's completely different, <laughs> and it's. Um, it's a much more methodical teaching. It involves a list. It comes from Yangutra Nikaya. It's about the development of wisdom. So if you're able to come back, we'll see you then. Have a good lunch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.